somewhere in the bowels of the city that never sleeps. Kevin McCullough, radio host with Salem Media. Is a man also not sleeping. Syndicated radio talk show host Kevin McCullough. And that guy would like a word with you. Many of you know him from as Lux Tradamus. Of course that Kevin show is going to be great. The only thing that could be greater, of course, would be that Donald show. But we don't have that, so we have that Kevin show. Featuring the music of Dick Tunney and the Dream in Color Orchestra. And yet to come this hour on That Kevin Show, he's up 24 hours a day making sure you're informed. Newsmax CEO Chris Ruddy. She's in favor of the Invincible Family, Kimberly Ells. He's nominated for his first Grammy tomorrow night, Phil Wickham. And now, live from Times Square, where he's arguing with a pizza rat, here's that Kevin. All right, my next guest is someone that I first ran across. It has to have been like, I don't know, 100 years ago. Before Newsmax was ever a television channel, I had the distinct privilege of being able to write uh, opinion editorials for some of his uh, early days in the uh, web space as the internet, the interwebs were just coming about. But it's a real joy to welcome one of the visionaries in conservative media, the uh, CEO of Newsmax Inc., Chris Ruddy. I, I was just going to say, I think you ran across me. You, uh, I'm glad you, you didn't run me over. You just ran across <laughs> me. Well, that was really quite some amazing time when you think about it. The explosion of Newsmax.com and, of course, you know, Town Hall and World Net Daily and all these, like, burgeoning little yeah. outlets of conservative information. And it really changed the way the web was perceived. And yeah. similarly, a few years ago, you got into the TV business with uh, the idea that more voices added to the conversation. And now Newsmax TV is the fourth highest rated cable news channel. Nielsen says 25 million people tune in regularly to watch us. Um, so we're huge, you know, and it's available on every major cable system except DirecTV right now. Yeah. Uh, and Dish takes this. And um, it's available on most major OTT systems for the time period, for, for the pe short period. But it is available. Uh, and as you know, we had major news this week. For the first time, DirecTV, which had us on for five years, removed us. AT&T owns DirecTV. They removed us, uh, denying 13 million homes, Newsmax, which is pretty shocking, but it really shouldn't be shocking because... Last year, they removed One America Channel. Yeah. And they'll say, well, we were trying to cut costs, but it's funny. We hardly cost these guys anything. I mean, it's such a tiny amount. They have 22 liberal news channels on DirecTV. They never cut them. They never reduced them. And our ratings are higher than three quarters of these well, guys. Well, I was about and to we, say, your ratings probably eclipse 20 of the 22 that they have. I would imagine MSNBC well, and CNN would be the only ones that would be comparable. Well, Fox, CNN, MSNBC, and then it's Newsmax. And then everyone else is underneath us. And then you'd look at the top 100 cable channels. Everyone gets a fee. Um, DirecTV didn't even want to negotiate price with us. It wasn't even that. wasn't the issue. And they just didn't, it was pretty clear to us, they did not want to treat us like a regular cable news channel. Um, and they deplatformed us and removed us. We consider it censorship. President Trump issued a really strong statement on Wednesday night. He said it was disgusting what they had done. He reminded everybody of what they did on One America. And he's telling everyone, cancel DirecTV. 
Yeah. They're, they're a woke company. Cancel AT&T services, which owns them. Uh, he was saying he was canceling his, his cell phone, his other wireless services. There's many options. You don't need to give money to, the, to people that are really oppose your point of view. Yeah. Let me ask you about that specifically, because the idea that um, there are 22 liberal networks, none of them, they can't all be profitable. And you have methodically grown Newsmax television from, uh, you know, basically a streaming channel. I remember when you launched, you were on a on a, on a web page and on, then you got apps and you were on phones and then you began to get clearances, but you've grown it into a bona fide, um, addictive news source for hundreds of millions of people. And I can't, what does direct, I mean, Sunday ticket, I guess, brings a certain, uh, signature audience that they hadn't been able to get anywhere else. But I think the NFL taking ownership back of a lot of their own channels and doing what they're doing. If direct TV goes down this path, What's what's the option for them? You're going to eliminate everybody that disagrees with you philosophically and and your business be damned in the process? They'll claim that this has nothing about ideology. But why is it that all the conservative channels get closed down, but no liberal ones do? When they have audiences. And we have audiences. Yeah, Yeah. they have no audiences. So really now DirecTV has Fox and Fox is okay, but it has 22 liberal channels and no one else. So they don't want any additional news channels um, they, uh, that are conservative. It's pretty clear. They told us they would never pay us a single penny. Uh, they keep saying they're saving costs for their customers. But you know what? They pay the liberal channels that you don't even watch, 22 of them. I think that's why so many people – they used to have 20 million subscribers to DirecTV when we started. Do you know how many they have now? Well, I told you earlier, 13 million. So there are 7 million people have left. Seven million subscribers, and you can see why they're leaving. They they want to go where they have something. They're not paying for liberal woke channels. They have a channel called Vice on Directv that's pro Antifa, and they have no audience. And they pay them more money than Little Newsmax was asking for. The little amount the Newsmax was asking for. So uh, look, people need to act. We're encouraging people. To call DirecTV, their phone number, we have a toll-free number. It's very simple, 877, and then the number 7 Newsmax. So it's 877, then the number 7, and then Newsmax after it. I think you get one extra digit than you need, but it doesn't matter. Your phone will still go through. Yeah. 877-7-Newsmax. Let DirecTV know. Either demand that they bring Newsmax on. You, you have the right to cancel, as President Trump has suggested. Um, we also encourage people to go to our new web page and we have an online petition for Congress and others. It's called I want newsmax.com. Okay. I want newsmax.com. And we've had an incredible response. Uh, we'll probably have some big numbers later this week. I was week. just going to ask you what is, what has been, cause this has happened recently and it's been a short firestorm already, but what, what has been the response and what are you hearing? Well, the 800 number, which we tracked to DirecTV, has brought in over 40,000, probably close to 50,000 phone calls in just a couple of days. That's, as you know, it's just yeah. unheard of. Um, no, that's, and that's, that would get Congress's attention if you delivered that many to uh, on a piece of legislation. So certainly. I, I, I just got a phone. And Trump is telling people also to cancel AT&T services, your cell phone, like we discussed. Um, I just got an email from someone who's a friend of some local AT&T vice president said 
The stores are getting people coming in the stores complaining. They're calling their local AT&T service provider saying, what are you doing? We're going to cancel. You better bring Newsmax back. <laughs> you know, this is a company, AT&T owned CNN at the time it was weaponized against Trump. Right. And it was um, very, it was used very harshly against Trump. Um, and well, so, Chris, Chris uh, isn't that what this is about? I mean, there's an election cycle just ahead and you guys, you're, you're, you're doing too much good. They need to censor us. This is censorship. They need to censor us and close down our point of view, which the wokes are doing these days, because they know this election's coming up. They don't want, and Newsmax is pretty fair. Um, we have all points of view on. We have yeah. all conservatives, liberals, Democrats, but they don't like two points of view. They want one point of view. Yeah. Um, and the Nielsen data shows our audience is very balanced between Republicans, Democrats, middle of the road. We have one of the most balanced audiences on cable. Well, I uh, have always appreciated your approach to the uh, commentary that you have, an editorial that you have uh, nurtured at Newsmax. And I'm going to ask my listeners and viewers, please go to the phone, dial 877-7-NEWSMAX, 877-7-NEWSMAX. Well, friends, uh, let's come to the aid of uh, Ruddy and Newsmax. This is a great organization. They are fighting the good fight. And uh, just because Salem News Channel or Salem Radio may be quote, seen as a competitor. When it comes to these types of issues, we believe that more speech is best speech. Well, we appreciate Salem for standing up with us on this. And I can tell you, you know, they went after One America. We did cover it. We should have done more at the time. They're coming after Newsmax. Uh, is Fox next? Is Salem next? Yeah. You no, know, this all started because Nancy Pelosi's Congress people sent a letter to all the cable agencies saying that they should drop One America, Newsmax, and Fox. And DirecTV clearly complied with those orders. Well, it's time to push back. And Chris Ruddy, that's what you're doing. Thank you for being here. We appreciate Kevin you. Thank you. Kevin McCullough, one more time, that phone number, 877-7-NEWSMAX, 877-7-NEWSMAX. Kevin McCullough coming back from New York. Stay here. Still to come, The Invincible Family with Kimberly Elms. A bit later, a Grammy-nominated performance from Phil Wickham. But next, it's more arguing with Pizza Rats after this break with that Kevin. My next guest has spent the last decade trying to figure out why some at the UN and elsewhere are trying to crush motherhood and basically erase fatherhood. Ladies and gentlemen, please put your hands together and welcome Kimberly Ells. Kimberly, it's great to have you with us. Welcome to New York. Thank you so much. It's nice to be here. Um, you have spent the last 
decade or more uh, talking about this concept of basically having the family be crushed. You've documented all of this in a new book called Invincible Family, and people can go to InvincibleFamily.com for more info. But I'm curious as to what your story was as to your motivation for getting involved with this. Yeah, so I, I, my first push kind of into this public arena was when I found a document online that was very upset, concerning to me. And what it was is uh, it was published by International Planned Parenthood Federation, and it was a children's sexual rights document. And it outlines these 10 principles um, that purportedly outline what children's sexual rights are and how they can claim them. And uh, I almost thought it was a joke at first because, I, you know, it, that most mainstream people would not agree with that, certainly parents. And so as I got digging into that, um, I realized this wasn't just a one-off. This wasn't just a uh, one document on some obscure site. What I came to understand was this this is a global effort to undermine the family. And one of the ways that, one of the uh, instruments for doing that is through corrupting sex and teaching children that they have sexual rights separate from, from family responsibilities or, or reproduction or anything else. Let me ask you, what is the intent of this global movement? Why is it so important for those that are in power to crush the family unit and to basically try to pretend that it doesn't matter? It's been the building block since the beginning of civilization. So I'm not sure how right. you continue to have civilizations if you don't have families. But what's the thinking? Why? What, what's, what, what do they say about it? Right. Well, the family predates the state, as you've said. Families can exist separate from the state and existed before any government ever existed. The family is the original form of government. And so that being the case, if you look at it on a deeper level, um, the family government, the family unit is a threat to other government forces, other government entities. It's been said, you know, that the family is what stands between the naked individual and the totalitarian state, and that is true. And so uh, anyone with totalitarian tendencies uh, then would have to take aim at the family and get rid of it as much as you can. Um, you can't really get rid of it totally, which is why I call my book The Invincible Family, but you can hurt it a lot, and you can destroy it and break it and, and uh, interfere in people's lives a lot in such a way that then the state can have more power than the family in an increasing way. And, and that, that really at the core is the purpose of the movement. Well, and I, some people may be tuning in and say, this sounds fantastically, uh, obnoxiously impossible. Um, you've been looking at this for a decade. Uh, where are we at on the global scale? What, what, how is it being implemented? Who's doing it? Right. And um, I myself was skeptical at first until I went to the United Nations myself and saw who they were partnering with and what kind of programs were being pushed and the money that is behind it. And, um, you know, the, the hand of the United Nations is somewhat invisible, um, but we all feel it through uh, through culture and different uh, programs that are that are enacted. One push in, in particular um there's a huge push for comprehensive sexuality education at the United Nations to get sex information into the hands of kids. Um, they always say that it's going to be age appropriate, but if you read my book, you'd be shocked at, at what I've seen. Um, and I, we're seeing it more on a blatant, blatant level. Let me read you just one quote from the book. This is from that first document from International Planned Parenthood Federation, the exclaim document. They say, sexuality and sexual pleasure are important parts of being human for everyone, no matter what age, 
no matter if you're married or not, not, and no matter if you want to have children or not, governments and leaders have a duty to respect, protect, and fulfill all sexual rights for everyone. I didn't hear any limitations on age there. In fact, it said at all ages. Regardless of age, yeah. Regardless of age, regardless of what your intentions are of family formation or anything else. And it's interesting, too, that they say that governments didn't have a right to provide this uh, for children of, for people of all ages. And why is that? Because it's family destructive. Because if you corrupt sex and get kids thinking that sex is only for fun, there's no uh, creative power behind it or purpose behind it, then you're sending a, careening off on a course that's going to um, be very bad for, for everyone involved and ultimately for society. It seems like on some level that the current movement that we're seeing with school boards and the sort of trans agenda that is being implemented across the country because of the the Biden directive to have gender neutral bathrooms and all the rest of that, Mm -hmm. that there is a similar theme to that specific movement and this overall kind of global emphasis that sex is something that we play with and feel and experience, but that there's no real consequence to. Um, Daniel po- uh, Patrick Moynihan, former senator from New York, did an in-depth study before he died many years ago that showed what this kind of thinking did to the inner city family and the very drastic mm-hmm. consequences that we have now suffered for generations with young black men because of it, uh, fatherlessness, all kinds of other things. But this is taking it even a step further. They're trying to eliminate any boundaries, any kind of definition, and any kind of what I would term healthy view of what sexual interaction should be. You're right. And ironically, though, they promote it in the name of health. And they cite, you know, international documents that say children have a right to health and health services. And really what they're getting at there is sexual health services, meaning abortion, meaning Condoms, abortion, STD yep. materials, all the, all the rest of it. Because we, right. we don't want to deal with the consequence of what we encourage. We just want to encourage it, which yep. in the end leads to the destruction that you're talking about. It does, and it 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 just it leads to the destruction ultimately of men's and women's lives, children's lives directly through abortion and the the devastation of broken marriages, and um, as you noted from the outset, the very underpinnings of society are in peril. So what they're doing is very smart, very crafty, and very effective, and and we're seeing that now. Um, I- and you said at the beginning that your book is titled The Invincible Family. We've only got a couple of minutes left, but mm-hmm. how does this invincible family fight back in this culture? What are some action points that you're encouraging people towards? Sure. Well, first of all, the family the family will outlast it all. So we have that hopeful uh, point. But what we must do in the meantime, first of all, the first and most important thing we need to do, and it seems so simple, but we have to teach our kids and our families what we believe about sex, marriage, gender, and the family. We have to teach them about chastity. We have to teach them about why sex matters, that it, what it really is about is the creation of life and families, and that that's something to be safeguarded and taken seriously. And if we're regularly and consistently talking to our children about those things, they can be fortified. The other thing we need to do policy-wise is we need to get children's rights uh, promoters out of schools yeah. because what they're trying to do is use sex ed and we need to say, we need to say no to that. Their whole marketing and research program. I mean, that's how they're gaining uh, new customers, so to speak. Kimberly Ells, the book is called the invincible family. And again, you can find more at invinciblefamily.com and uh, follow her on social media with that same handle as well. Kimberly, thanks for all that you're doing. Thank you so much. Thank you for being with us. Kevin McCullough, we've got a lot more straight ahead. Don't go away.
ready or not. We'll be right back. That Kevin Show with Kevin McCullough. My next guest is nominated this year for not one, but two Grammy Awards, and uh, he is a multiple Dove Award winner in the past. Uh, He comes from San Diego, but he's ready to step on the big stage of music's biggest night tomorrow night. Uh, Ladies and gentlemen, please put your hands together and welcome Mr. Phil Wickham. (laughs) Phil, it's great to have you here. Thanks for being here. Thanks so much, Kevin. It's amazing to be on. Appreciate it. Um, I am uh, very excited about your Grammy nominations. Uh, as someone who has been a part of worship teams that have played a lot of your songs in churches over the last decade, uh, it's been a lot of fun to see the emergence of your songwriting to continue to influence and, and make impact uh, everywhere you go. Uh, I've got a list of songs that are my favorite. I'd love to ask you the origins of every single one of them. We don't have time for any of that. Um, but I did want you to know this um, before the Grammys take place tomorrow night here at that Kevin show, we've been doing a thing called the uh, new music spotlight for the last three years. And over the last two years, you've had at least five singles that have been determined by our listeners to rank in the top uh, 10 of those 50 songs that are released each year. So a big congrats from our listener and viewership as well. They are huge Phil Wickham fans. That's amazing. I, that's new information to me, but that's incredible. Thanks, listeners, for voting, and <laughs> I'm so glad the songs connect. It's amazing. And it's and it's all genres of music, so you were up against T-Swift and Harry Styles and a whole bunch of other people as well. I don't know if that means anything to you, but it's it's kind of no, significant that's, in my it's, mind. It's such an honor. I, I, I feel like I've been doing it for a long time. You know, I, I, start, I got signed when I was 21 years old. I'm 38 now, and but just it almost feels like a whole new thing. And God is just bringing it to a different level. And it's, it's just what an honor to to be able to carry these songs of hope yeah. and heaven and Jesus. I, I want to talk a little bit about your journey, and I think the best way to do that is to start where you started. You were 13, I think, when you started leading worship the first time. Yeah. Um, Talk to me about what it was like growing up as Phil Wickham. <laughs> it was, felt pretty normal to me. <laughs> but um, uh, my parents are both worship leaders, and so I grew up in the church. I grew up thinking that's what you do with music. You sing it in church, and you sing it with people. Um, and so it was very natural to me when my dad, who's a guitar player, he handed me one of his old beater guitars, one that we'd like take to the beach. You know, I, I grew up in San Diego. And uh, he said, hey, I'll give you this you this guitar. You can have it if you if you promise to learn how to play it. And I just thought, cool, that's that's fun. So I spent a summer learning, and I fell in love with guitar. But really, God God used that moment in my life because um, the, the way I, I learned how to play guitar was playing these songs that I sang in church. Those were the only songs I knew. And so my dad would give me these chord charts for all these songs that we'd sing in church. And so, you know, I was a, I believed in God, and I was going to church my whole life. Like I said, my parents were on staff at churches my whole life. But that was when... I feel like God, the story of Jesus and God really connected with my heart personally. And it wasn't like, I didn't know God just through my family anymore or just mm. through the church anymore, but God used this music and these these old worships. Well, they were new at the time, but now these old worship songs from the nineties um, to, to connect my heart with him. And I started, 
I started experiencing his presence and his nearness and understanding more of God's love for us. And it, it may put me in a place of saying, God, and I had no idea what this meant, but I'll, I'll play these songs anywhere you want me to. Cause this is, mm. this is where I feel like I'm home. And, uh, and fast forward, you know, that was when I was 13, 14 years old. Like I said, I'm in my thirties now, <laughs> decades. Well, you're, you're basically uh, the Tom Brady of worship leaders is what it is. Uh, <laughs> but let me ask you this. Um, you, you made specific reference to this in your opening remarks. And I find it interesting. Uh, Keith Getty, close friend of mine. And, um, you said just a moment ago that this was the way you thought music should be done, singing songs to God and singing them with people. Um, there's a lot of artists that have made their living being on stage, but not necessarily singing with people. What is it about that that speaks to you? Well, there's some promises that we have in the scripture that speaks to this. And it's not because of the scripture that I feel this way, but I think it kind of defines what I experience and feel and understand it all to be like, there's a, there's a scripture that says that God inhabits the praises of his people, hmm. um, which, which um, is a really cool idea of God when God's people are unified in praise, um, that it's not that we bring, we bring God's God to us. He's at, we believe he's everywhere, but that means that something really special happens that he inhabits, that he's enthroned, that God, God takes dominion over that moment. And I think we can experience him and be, be aware of him in special ways when we come together. There's so many, even like when Jesus, Jesus is uh, recorded prayer before he's about to go get crucified. It tells you what he prays before the soldiers take him and he's about to go through this horrendous time. And his prayer is for you and me and everybody who believes in him to be unified. He's Phil Wickham. I'm Kevin McCullough. We're coming right back on That Kevin Show. Ready or not, we'll be right back. That Kevin Show. Kevin McCullough. Now, back to that Kevin show with Kevin McCullough. All right, we're back. He is nominated for a Grammy Award, actually two of them, tomorrow night, one with Chris Tomlin as a, as a co-nomination, but one all for his own, Hymn of Heaven. His name is Phil Wickham, and he rejoins us. Uh, Phil, it is great to have you with us. Um, I do want to start with the song uh, that you are nominated for, and uh, I will tell you that I have been a big fan of a lot of your songs. But there's something about this one that is very distinct, and I think that was even drove home even more particularly when you performed it for the Dove Awards this last year in the very kind of, you know, stripped down piano and, and guitar. And you seem to really feel something in that moment. Tell me about this song and tell me what it means to you. This song was written with uh, two good friends, uh, one Brian Johnson, who we've written several songs together that have lived outside of me and then another guy named Chris Dabbs and oh and Bill Johnson uh Brian's dad stepped into a, the back of a FaceTime once and and said a couple scriptures that ended up being uh the last verse so we put him on as a writer too oh that's cool it is cool and uh but this song was written in response to probably probably the most chaotic feeling um time of 2020 just frustrated and depressed because I couldn't be out with people. I'm, I'm, I'm out there in San Diego, just in my house, like, you know, 
and uh, and just just feeling the weight of the whole year, and uh, and then watching the news and this political unrest and cultural unrest in society. And so I'm just talking to my buddies, and we we're just we were both kind of in the same place, and uh, and we just started talking about how can you imagine if everybody that we're seeing on the news and everybody in the world actually had a clear vision of of Jesus and their love and his love for them? Like, can you imagine if they actually, if they got a revelation of what the cross means for them and the empty grave and the future they can have in Jesus? And and, and then we started talking about, well, that's what heaven's going to be. And like every eye will see, every, every ear will hear, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And it's going to be this place where all, Jesus is completely king and completely revealed. And uh, his kingdom is going to be fully established. And, and we're just like, we're kind of re- reveling in that moment. Like, can you imagine everything's healed again and everything's renewed and resurrected? This is what we believe the scriptures tell us. And this is what we have faith in, that Jesus is our future and our hope. And then we start, as we talked about heaven, Brian picked up a gu- his guitar on a FaceTime call. And, uh, and he just started singing this idea how I long to breathe the air of heaven. And it just started flowing and flowing and flowing. And in about man, 20 minutes, we had most of the song written and we were all like, you know, teary eyed and just so full of hope. And we, I, I had no idea if this song was going to connect on a large scale. I had no idea if it was going to be for sure. Didn't think of Grammys when I thought of this song, but what I did think is like, I know this song has a really, there's a really big reason, a really strong reason, really significant reason why this song exists. And it might just be for a select group of people that need to get some hope in their life, just like we did. Um, but I was so excited to carry it and to proclaim this over rooms and over people's lives. And, um, and, but then fast forward and that, that, that moment of depression and frustration turned into a song that, uh, ended up reaching way beyond. There's more people know about that song than know my name, which is like a hugest honor. Well, and it's interesting because, um, and I've been around enough songwriters, long enough to kind of understand this, but some of the greatest encouragement to other people comes from some of the deepest pain that they go through. And I'd like to connect another incident in your life. You had a challenge with your, uh, with your ability to speak and sing. You were silent for a full month after a surgery for something that was on one of your vocal cords. And it was a, it was a questioning period for you what what did God show you in that moment, and how did it end up impacting the Phil Wickham that came out of the month of silence on the other end? Um, it was it was a tough time, obviously. When you when when God lets you go through a season that that strips away your kind of a big part of your identity and uh, and and the thing you love to do, the thing that I thought my worth was all wrapped up in, honestly. Um, and, you know, in context, it's in comparison, there's a lot worse things you can be told in a hospital room than mm-hmm. you have a polyp on your vocal cord. And I knew that. And I, you know, I knew that I, I knew in my my head that like God has a plan. And if it's if I'm if, it, if I'm changing uh, careers, if I'm going to go be a barista at a <laughs> coffee shop, then so be it, you know. But I definitely didn't feel that in my heart. What I felt in my heart was that I was losing a thing that made me worth anything to people, mm-hmm. which um, which seems a little silly now in hindsight. But I, th- I just remember th- praying to God internally because I had to be totally silent. Actually, it was a month before the surgery to try to see if the polyp would go down and not have to have surgery. And then oh, okay. a month 
after surgery. So it was like two months of literally no talking, no singing. And, uh, and you kind of get in your head in that situation. Sure. And, uh, and so started feeling down on myself, frustrated, all that stuff. I had to cancel show after show after show after show. It's probably 60, 70 events. And, and uh, I remember talking to God. I was like, why? Like, this is so, I, I, I'm here to do your thing. I'm here to sing about you. It's like, just can you heal me or can you just, what's going on? And, uh, and then in, in a very profound moment, maybe, maybe I've had two or three of these moments in my life where I was just so profoundly aware of God's presence and nearness. Kind of like I go back to it and it increases my faith every time I think about it because I, mm. I just felt it was like that, you know, that story where it's like God comes in the earthquake and it, but he wasn't in the earthquake and God comes in the fire, but he wasn't in the fire. And then at the end, it's like God comes in, in a gentle whisper and he spoke. And, and I just felt like that gentle whisper but it also felt like kind of an earthquake in my spirit you know i just knew it was him and he said who am i like or that's what i felt like to define me phil and i said god he's like what else am i to? And, and i got to this place like father was in my mind and my heart like you're my father and it's like well what does that make me what does that make you phil it makes me a child you know and and then I just that that idea of father and child like started. It was just this moment with the Lord. He, like he revealed his heart to me in just a bigger, not completely because I think I would probably explode, but uh, in a bigger, in a bigger and bigger, bigger way of what it meant that I am. My biggest identity is that I'm called His, that I'm called His family, that I'm called forgiven and set free. I'm a child of Him. I'm a child of Heaven. My wow. citizenship is not all that stuff that I knew. Like started for the first time. I feel like in my life, really becoming like what, what I believed. That's good stuff. Phil Wickham, congratulations. We'll, we'll all be watching uh, to see uh, tomorrow night on the uh, Grammy Awards. Friends, when we come back from this next break, uh, you're going to see that Dove Awards performance that I just referenced in Hymn of Heaven as we close out the show. Ready or not, we'll be right back. Serving it up with a no-drink minimum. It's that Kevin show. Once again, Phil Wickham. To give the what pain is gone, and mercy fills the streets. To look upon the one who bled to save me and walk with him. For all eternity There will be a day When all we bow before Him There will be a day When death will be no more Standing face to face With you died He rose
Kevin Show.